Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of John L. Melton, a 33-year-old woman who was living in Neptune, New Jersey, and who was found brutally murdered inside her apartment on September 14, 2009. Janelle was a social studies teacher, but that day, she didn't show up for work. Her ex-husband, who she worked with, went over to her apartment and found her dead. For years, Janelle's murder went unsolved until people started talking. It took six years, but her killers were finally caught. But the reason why Janelle was murdered only added to the senselessness of her death. This is Janelle's story. Before I begin this week's episode, I wanted to first thank everyone who listens and supports Afterthoughts. And I also wanted to remind you that Afterthoughts is simply bonus content. I said when Jason and I started that it would not be everyone's cup of tea. I know a lot of you listen to Black Girl Gone because I just tell the story. And so it's perfectly okay if you don't like it. Even if you just listen to our normal episodes, I still very much appreciate your support and hope that you continue to listen. The story I'm covering this week is a really terrifying story. Janelle Melton's killers have been caught and convicted. But this story, unlike most of the stories I tell, isn't about domestic violence or betrayal. There were no warning signs, and what happened to Janelle literally could happen to anyone. And it's one of the things that people fear the most, especially women who live alone. Most people who are murdered are murdered by people they knew. Most of the stories that I've covered, the women who have been murdered, were killed by someone that they knew. But this story is different. It took years for the case to be solved. And when it finally was, the truth revealed not only how heinous this murder was, but also how senseless it was. Janelle Milton was born on July 7th, 1977 in Trenton, New Jersey, where she grew up. 
And Janelle's upbringing shaped her academic journey. Beginning her education at Our Lady of Divine Shepherd School, she then moved on to McCortenson Catholic High School, where she laid the foundation for her future achievements. With a thirst for knowledge, Janelle eagerly went on to college and graduated from Morgan State University, a historically Black university located in Baltimore, Maryland. But her learning journey didn't stop there. After graduating from Morgan State, she came back to New Jersey, and her passion for education motivated her to get her master's degree, leading her to Monmouth University, where she began another chapter and completed a master's degree in supervisory education. After receiving her master's, Janelle began her career as a teacher, and her commitment to teaching continued throughout her professional career. She began teaching at the Village Charter School in Trenton, New Jersey, where she dedicated three years to shaping the minds of the children that she taught. The enthusiasm and commitment that she showed to both students and colleagues was contagious. After that, Janelle moved on to the Granville Charter School, where she brought her creative and unique teaching style to a brand new school. The innovative approaches that she used and her passion for creating an engaging learning environment made her a highly respected teacher. After her time at Granville Charter, Janelle became a long-term substitute for the Trenton Board of Education. With years of teaching experience under her belt, Janelle was able to find her true calling at Red Bank Middle School. For seven years, she ignited students' curiosity and critical thinking through her social studies classes. With her creative teaching methods and compassionate nature, She created an environment where students thrived. Janelle was a lover of history, and she cultivated an interest in her students. And in 2009, she got to witness history when she attended the first inauguration of President Barack Obama. During her time at Red Bank, she was a staple of the school community. She was the cheerleading and dance coach, a yearbook advisor, and a member of the school home improvement team. Everybody loved Mrs. Melton, and she loved being a teacher. Not everybody gets to do what they truly love for a living, but clearly, Janelle was one of the lucky few who did. While Janelle's career flourished, things in her personal life had hit a rocky patch. Janelle and Michael Melton first met when they were kids. Michael, in an episode of Cold Case Files about Janelle's murder, said that He knew her from Trenton, where they both grew up. Her elementary school was across the street from his house, and so he used to see her coming and going from school. Michael said that he would flirt with her and try to get her attention, but that was about it. After she went to high school, they didn't see each other for a while. But after they both finished college, they found themselves working at Red Bank Middle School. Michael was a school-based counselor at the school that Janelle was teaching at, and When he saw her after all those years, he decided to shoot his shot. Luckily for him, Janelle was also interested, and the two began dating. Michael said that he was fresh out of college at the time, living a typical young bachelor's lifestyle, but it was something about Janelle that he knew that he was ready to leave that life behind and get serious about their relationship. Michael proposed to Janelle, and the two got married in Jamaica on August 28, 2003. 
After they got married, Janelle and Michael both continued to work at Red Bank. As a young married couple, they had both found success in their respective careers, and things between the couple were good for a while. But after about three years, things began to change. Michael takes responsibility for the breakdown in the marriage, telling Cold Case Files that he had a hard time accepting the love that Janelle was giving him. He admitted that he had never experienced that kind of love and affection from someone, and so it was hard for him to handle. He felt overwhelmed, and that led him to spending less and less time at home. Around that time, he had begun a basketball company, and so he spent his time dealing with that, and eventually, Michael filed for divorce. According to him, the divorce was not something that Janelle wanted, but his own immaturity caused their marriage to end. I'm sure Janelle was heartbroken. I mean, your husband filing for divorce after only three years would be hard for anyone, especially if you didn't want the marriage to end. But Janelle, as hard as it may have been, accepted the end of the marriage, and her and Michael remained friends. They both still worked at Red Bank, and according to him, they spoke on the phone almost daily. Over the next three years, Janelle settled into life as a single woman again. She lived in Neptune, New Jersey, at the Brighton Arms apartment complex, and Michael said that she had really begun to enjoy having her own space. The 2009-2010 school year began like any other for Janelle. She was someone who started working on lesson plans in the summer, and so she was always ready and excited for the new school year. That year, she told her friends and colleagues that she wanted to be Teacher of the Year. And based on everything that we know about Janelle as a teacher, that wasn't far out of reach. But as the school year began, no one in Janelle's life knew that just a few weeks later, their worlds would be devastated. On Monday, September 14th, 2009, Janelle was expected to be at work as usual. She impressed me as a teacher who was always on time, and so when the school day began and she had not shown up for work or called out, it was the first sign that something was wrong. Janelle had also planned to show her students a speech that Barack Obama had given about education. According to Michael, they were actually planning on bringing their classes together and showing the speech. But by 8 a.m., when Janelle hadn't shown up for work, the school asked Michael if he could go over to her house to check on her. Red Bank is about 20 minutes from Neptune, and so Michael got in his car and drove over to the Brighton Arms Apartments where Janelle lived. When he got there, he saw her car parked in the driveway, and so initially he was relieved because he thought, well, at least she's home. But Michael had no idea the horror that awaited him on the other side of that apartment door. When Michael went to Janelle's front door, he said that he called her name. He thought that maybe she had just overslept, but he wasn't getting a response. He tried the door and it was open, so he entered the apartment and called out to Janelle again. But she wasn't answering him. When Michael went back to where Janelle's bedroom was, he found her. She was still in her nightgown and lying on the floor. As he approached, he could see that she had blood on her nightgown, and it appeared to him like she had makeup on her face. 
Michael said that at first, he thought that Janelle had fallen and hit her head or maybe even intentionally hurt herself. He had no idea what was going on and he had no idea that Janelle was dead. Michael called 911 and waited for paramedics to arrive. At around 9.20 a.m., paramedics arrived at Janelle's apartment and they entered the room where she was and tried to call her name, but she was lifeless. When one of the paramedics bent down to take her pulse, it was clear that Janelle was dead. When they told Michael, he said that he dropped to his knees and started crying. In the blink of an eye, everything had changed. Little did anyone know that this was just the beginning of an emotional journey that would uncover secrets and test relationships. What really happened to Janelle? And what secrets were hidden within the walls of that apartment? The answers to these haunting questions remained unanswered and deepened the mysteries surrounding her death. As the investigation unfolded, dark truths and unexpected twists would come to light, forever altering the lives of those who knew and loved Janelle. I love the feeling of soaking up the sun this time of year. But with all that time in the sun, I'm always worried about protecting my skin. But with native sunscreen, I can give my skin the protection it needs and soak up some much needed sun. Native's quickly absorbing, ultra sheer, hydrating, and lightweight sunscreen formula offers broad spectrum SPF 30 protection from UVA and UVB rays. All native sunscreen is made with 20% active zinc oxide formula that is dermatologist tested and suitable for sensitive skin. All native sunscreen is made with oils derived from plants that seal in the skin's moisture and are vegan and cruelty-free. Choose from one of native's three delicious but subtle scents, like coconut and pineapple, rosé, or sweet peach and nectar for your face and body, or try Native's unscented option. With all Native sunscreens, you get protection from the sun that is free of chemical actives, which makes Native sunscreen compliant with the Hawaii Act 104, which was passed in an effort to protect Hawaii's reefs. Give your skin the protection it deserves with Native's mineral sunscreens. Go to nativedo.com slash girlgone or use promo code GIRLGONE at checkout to get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash GIRLGONE or use promo code GIRLGONE at checkout. nativedeo.com slash GIRLGONE or use promo code GIRLGONE. On September 14th, 2009, 33-year-old John L. Melton was found murdered inside her Neptune, New Jersey apartment. When she didn't show up for work, her ex-husband Michael went over to her apartment to check on her and found her dead on the floor of her bedroom. As the investigation began, police began to piece together a theory of what happened. The problem was, they couldn't figure out why. As police began arriving at Janelle's home, it was clear from the beginning that they were dealing with a homicide, and it was a brutal one. Inside the apartment, 
They found cabinets open and drawers pulled out. The fridge was open and there were items strewn throughout the house. They had even gone through cereal boxes. It looked as if someone was looking for something. The police just couldn't figure out what. Almost immediately, police determined that there were at least two people involved in this murder. They also noticed something that is often missing in the stories that I tell, and that was that there were signs of forced entry. In the dinette area, detectives noticed that the window had been forced open, and directly under the window, there was a chair that had a shoe print on it. Near the chair, they also found a lighter. But Janelle wasn't a smoker, and crime scene techs didn't find any candles in her house. And so investigators quickly determined that the lighter most likely belonged to the killer. Whoever had come into the apartment and murdered Janelle had tortured her. Investigators found duct tape indicating that she had been bound at some point. All of the items collected at the scene, including the duct tape and lighter, were sent to a forensic lab to be tested for DNA and fingerprints. Through their investigation, they determined that Janelle had been beaten in an attempt to get some kind of information out of her. They beat her so severely that her jaw was shattered. And when they were done, they shot her in the head one time. The news about Janelle's murder quickly spread, and it hit the community hard, especially for her students and colleagues who had just seen her on Friday. According to everyone who loved her, Janelle didn't have an enemy in the world. She was loved and respected, and so it made no sense that someone would come into her home and murder her. Michael was also having a hard time processing what happened, but as her former husband, he had to be ruled out as a suspect before police could move on. Often these crimes are domestic, and so police brought Michael in for questioning. They asked him about his relationship with Janelle and his whereabouts during the time they believed she was murdered. Michael explained that he and Janelle were friends and still had a lot of love for each other. As for an alibi, well, Michael said that he had been at a friend's house, and then later, he went to his girlfriend's house. He also submitted DNA samples voluntarily to police so they could test it against the evidence at the scene. Police were able to verify Michael's alibi, and they also determined through his phone records that he was nowhere near Janelle's apartment. Police determined pretty quickly that Michael was not their killer and ruled him out as a suspect. But that didn't matter in the court of public opinion, and people began to suspect that Michael was the person who murdered Janelle. Two days after her murder, a local newspaper alluded that Michael and Janelle were estranged and that she was only days away from finalizing their divorce. After the article was published, Michael said that everyone turned on him. Even though police didn't believe he was involved and had verified his alibi, people believed that he was involved. A friend of Michael's, who was also a lawyer, offered to represent him pro bono. He told Michael that he should be prepared for anything. 
When he returned to work a few days after Janelle's murder, Michael found a note on his desk telling him that he was no longer allowed to teach or have any contact with students. For Michael, it was just another blow. He hadn't been arrested or charged with anything. But as the ex, people began to believe that he was the killer. I guess it was the only reasonable explanation people could come up with for such a heinous crime. After meeting with the school administration with his attorney, it was recommended that Michael take a non-teaching position while the investigation was ongoing. Meanwhile, investigators were still trying to piece together what happened to Janelle the night she was murdered. They went back to the apartment complex several times and spoke to Janelle's neighbors. A few recalled hearing something that night, and one even reported seeing a man behind Janelle's building. But nothing that made them suspicious or worried enough to call the police. Investigators also canvassed the area and went through dumpsters to look for any additional evidence. Two months later, in November 2009, the state lab was able to identify DNA found on the duct tape. And unfortunately for Michael, it didn't help ease the public or Janelle's family's suspicions because the DNA came back as a match to two people, Janelle and Michael. Michael, however, had an explanation for his DNA being on the tape. He said that when he found Janelle, there was duct tape on the floor, which got stuck to his shoe. And so he used his hand to take it off, causing his DNA to transfer onto the tape. Now, based on what police already knew about Michael, they had determined that he was not involved. And based on the kind of DNA that they found, they concluded that his explanation was reasonable. They had also found DNA on that lighter, but that had come back inconclusive and so they sent it to another lab to be tested further. While investigators waited for that testing, they continued to search for leads, but they were having a hard time figuring out who killed Janelle and why. As the months turned to years, Janelle's murder began to go cold. Leads had dried up, and the tips had too. Michael, who remained under a cloud of suspicion, turned to alcohol and contemplated suicide. He said that he couldn't go anywhere because everyone thought he was a murderer. Three long years went by, and those who loved Janelle began to question whether or not they would ever get justice. But in December 2012, three years after Janelle's murder, police got a break in the case that would crack it wide open. On December 3rd, 2012, lab tests from the lighter found at the scene identified the main contributor to the DNA as Gregory Jean Baptiste, a gang member from Asbury Park, New Jersey, with a long criminal history. After he was identified, Jean Baptiste was brought in for questioning, but he denied knowing anything. And he told police that he had never seen Janelle before and was not in her apartment. When police told him they found his DNA, he wasn't moved. He continued to deny his knowledge or involvement in Janelle's murder. And police were convinced that they were getting closer, but 
DNA alone wasn't enough to hold or charge Gregory Jean-Baptiste. And so after about a half hour of questioning, he was let go. And again, the case went cold. It was reassigned to new detectives, and the hope was that fresh pairs of eyes may find something that the first detectives had missed. But they found themselves just as the detectives before, with very little to go on. Meanwhile, after years of being suspected of being involved in Johnnell's murder, Michael decided to take matters into his own hands. And one thing he knew is that the streets talk, and there was someone out there that knew something. It was a matter of getting them to talk. And so Michael asked a friend of his who was from the area to ask around to see if he could find out anything. And one day, his friend introduced him to another man. Michael's friend told the other man how he was just trying to find out what happened to his wife. And two days later, the man came back and he had a story for Michael. He said that he heard that gang members had gone to Brighton Arms looking for a drug dealer named Munch. Munch apparently lived directly next door to Janelle. But several days earlier, one of the gang members overheard Munch's girlfriend at a bar bragging about how he had $15,000 in cash in his freezer. And being a drug dealer, they also knew that he had drugs, and so they devised a plan to go and rob Munch. But they broke into the wrong apartment, and when they encountered Janelle, they at first thought she was the girlfriend that had been running her mouth about the money. And so they tied Janelle up and tried to beat the information about the money out of her. She, of course, had no idea what they were talking about. And after ransacking the house and meeting Janelle, they realized that they were in the wrong home. And so they shot her in the head so there wouldn't be any witnesses. The information was shocking, but it was just what Michael needed to help clear his name completely. He now knew that there were people out there who knew what happened. The problem was, he still had no idea who the killers were. The friend of the friend only knew the story. He didn't know the names of the killers. But the information was enough for Michael to take to the police. And so he contacted investigators and came in to tell them the story that he was told. Armed with that information, Detectives started reaching out to informants they had to see if they could identify the people from Michael's story. And a few weeks later, detectives got their biggest lead of the case when one of the informants identified three men and a woman who were involved in Janelle's murder. The informant said that Gregory Jean-Baptiste, Ebenezer Bird, and Jerry Spalding were the ones who broke into Janelle's home and killed her. They said a woman who they did not identify was the getaway driver. After years of nothing, investigators were finally getting closer to making an arrest. Gregory Jean-Baptiste was the same man whose DNA was found on the lighter at Janelle's home. And two other gang members, one of whom was already in prison for an unrelated crime. But it wasn't enough to make an arrest. 
police still needed a witness to come forward. And in December 2015, they finally found that witness. On December 1st, 2015, the girlfriend of Ebenezer Bird, Narika Scott, came into the police station and revealed that during a visit with Ebenezer, he told her that he and two other men had killed Janelle. And she identified the getaway driver as Elizabeth Pinto. Narika was clearly terrified. But the information she gave would prove to be invaluable. And it led investigators to who would ultimately become the prosecution's star witness. After interviewing Narika, police tracked down Elizabeth Pinto and brought her in for questioning. Like Narika, she too was terrified. Now, it's not clear if these young women were a part of the gang, but their proximity to gang members put them in danger, and being found out to be a snitch could be deadly. And so it's understandable why they were afraid. But it had been six years, and it was finally time for the truth to come out. Elizabeth told police that she was the person who drove the three suspects to the Brighton Arms apartments. She said that they didn't tell her where they were going. They just instructed her to drive. She said they were dressed in all black and wearing latex gloves. They parked across the street, and then she watched as the three men went over to the apartment complex. Elizabeth said that she waited for a while, and then the three men came running from the apartment building. She even showed detectives where she had parked the car. Investigators finally had the information that they had been looking for for six years. Elizabeth pled guilty to conspiracy, and part of her plea deal required her to testify against the other three defendants. On March 23, 2015, six years and six months after Janelle was murdered, Gregory Jean-Baptiste, Ebenezer Bird, and Jerry Spaulding were all charged with felony murder. A fourth man, James Fair, who was not at the murder, was charged with conspiracy to commit robbery. Police learned that he had been the one who told the other three about the money, leading them to the wrong apartment and ultimately the murder of John L. Melton. On January 17, 2019, the murder trial began. The prosecution had built a case with overwhelming evidence that included DNA, witness testimony, and cell phone records that placed all three suspects at Janelle's home. The defense tried to point fingers at Michael and argued that all of the DNA had not been tested. The prosecution, however, laid out a compelling case with Elizabeth Pinto as their star witness. They presented to the jury that, based on the evidence, they believe that after Elizabeth Pinto picked the three men up from Ebenezer's mom's house, they drove to the apartments. Once there, not knowing which apartment was which, Gregory Jean-Baptiste mistakenly broke into Janelle's apartment, where she had been home alone, either in bed or getting ready for bed. Jean-Baptiste, according to prosecutors, entered the apartment through the window and then opened the sliding glass door to let the other two in. They then duct-taped Janelle to a chair, 
and tried to get her to tell them where the money was. And then after they realized that they were in the wrong apartment and beat Janelle nearly to death, they simply shot Janelle like she was nothing. And then they left. All three men were found guilty. Jean-Baptiste was sentenced to 95 years. Ebenezer Byrd received life plus 40 years, totaling 115 years. And Jerry Spaulding was also given a life sentence. They will all spend the remainder of their life in prison. Janelle Melton had no connection to her killers. She had no idea that three gang members would break into her home on a Sunday night and mistake her for the girlfriend of a drug-dealing neighbor. But in a case that was ultimately mistaken identity, she had her life brutally cut short. As heinous as this all sounds, these kind of murders are the rare ones because, like I said before, most people are murdered by people that they know. But what happened to Janelle does happen. And it's a terrifying reality because you can't always prevent things like this. Janelle was an innocent victim of someone's deadly mistake. And although it took nine long years, the killers were finally brought to justice because the people who knew something began to talk. It lets you know that even in the cases that seem to be the coldest, they can be solved if someone comes forward. May Janelle Melton rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.